1: morning. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Bernice Heilbrunn, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing our author, Dr. Olga Gershenson. Dr. Gershenson has been Jewish in Russia, Russian in Israel, and finally became an academic in the United States, where she's Associate Professor of Judaic and Near Eastern Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her new book, The Phantom Holocaust, available in hardcover, paperback, Kindle and ebook versions is a graceful discussion of film history, World War II history, and Soviet history. The book is a page turner as you accompany Dr. Gershenson on her journey to uncover forgotten screenplays, films, and their directors. Dr. Gershenson's language skills and knowledge of the culture surely played a role in making this possible. Welcome, Dr. Gershenson. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Olga, could you please tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write The Phantom Holocaust? Well, you know,
2: you just read my bio, more or less. So I, you know, I've been studying basically uh, Israeli culture, but a particular aspect of Israeli culture, Israeli uh, culture of Russian immigrants. And, you know, so my first book dealt with... A gesher theater, which is this remarkable theater that was created in Tel Aviv by a bunch of uh, Russian theater directors and actors. And so bit by bit, you know, I sort of started looking back into where they came from and how this evolved, and so this grew into an interest in um, Russian Jewish cinema, Soviet Jewish cinema. And then bit by bit, I discovered that the most interesting angle to take is actually to start thinking about the representation of the Holocaust, which is maybe the the most neglected, the least explored subject. Usually people just don't think that, you know, the Soviets made any Holocaust movies. And you know, even film scholars, even historians don't know about that. So this is this is how this project came about. Mm Kind of found me a
1: I didn't find it. Okay, let let me share with our listeners that your book covers films about the, about Nazi anti-Semitism and then the Holocaust, starting in the 1930s, uh, which is quite remarkable, and then going to the 1980s, um, some of which were banned, some of which were produced, um, most all of which faced heavy censorship. Uh, the, The the process of censoring them and the revisions of the films and whether they even made uh made releases uh you track down in in your book. Um we'll talk about specific screenplays and films in a moment but first let's set the stage with uh sharing with our listeners the process of your archival research your film viewing and your interviews could you, and talk about some of your overarching themes. So let's start with the title Why the Phantom Holocaust
2: why the Phantom Holocaust? Because I argue in the book that, you know, some films, as you pointed just out now, were not made at all. <clears throat> meaning that we have screenplays, and by we have screenplay, meaning means somewhere in the dusty archives, there is a file that no one has touched for 70 years, you know, 50 years, whatever that has a screenplay. Other films were made, but then were never released. They were just put on censorship shelf and kind of like these screenplays forgotten. Mm-hmm. Some films were released, you know, God knows where, in the Soviet periphery and again disappeared without a trace. Mm-hmm. So whether they were made or not made, whether they were released or not released, in a way, they became phantoms. They exist, but they don't quite exist. And so, they so this was the impetus for writing the book to make phantoms real, to
1: give them materiality of the actual films. Mm-hmm. Could, could could you tell us a little bit about the challenge of doing research under these circumstances? I mean, th- this wasn't a matter of going to Netflix and pulling a uh, identifying films you wanted to see, obviously, this was a much, much greater challenge.
2: Well, yes, it was a great challenge, but it also made it so fantastically interesting. Um, I think that I, for the for, you know, duration of doing research about uh, this subject, I just felt myself a detective. I mean, it was absolutely thrilling. So I had to, um, I had this wonderful grant to uh, go to Russia and spend some Time actually, quite a bit of time in the archives. But I couldn't go to archives right away because I first needed to see the films. And to see the films, I needed to sift through literally like a hundred, you know, hundreds of films to um, first understand what's relevant, what's not relevant, and how to find the real ones. So the interesting thing about Russia is that. There is a black market for everything, <laughs> and a sure thing. There is also a black market for red films. So I got most of the films that I watched, and for two months I was just sitting watching movies nonstop. I watched four movies a day; it was kind of crazy. <laughs> I, you know, I bought this from these Russian black marketeers, who are usually film fans themselves, who have incredible collections at home uh, variously sort of stolen from the archives etc and converted into a DVD format mm-hmm. so this was the first so you know so this black market stuff was kind of fun you know you in the US I suppose you buy drugs in the same way in which I uh, bought these DVDs you know meeting at sort of discrete corners of, of subway stations with these people. Anyhow, and then after that, you know, I had to spend a lot of time in the archives and Russian archives are not for CCs. I mean, they're very unfriendly, difficult places where you need to wait for a long time, where you need to be a little bit of an insider to even penetrate in, where things are complicated by local bureaucracy, incompetence, and I don't know what else. So it was, you know, yeah, so, but, but it was exciting because of what they get planning. Mm-hmm.
1: It's you' you're you're already immersing us in a, a very distinctive culture um, sounds like quite a um, exciting cultural uh change um let, let's let's uh go to the first film then that i I'd, I'd like to talk about with you today. Um, in the 1930s, the Soviets released what you call the earliest images of anti-Semitism and concentration camps on world screens. It's, it's amazing today to think that in the 30s, the Soviets already did this. Um, these were anti-fascist films about Nazis and anti-Semitism uh, and persecution of Jews that were groundbreaking. So let's discuss one example of the, of the few that you identify. That's uh, Professor Mamluk. Uh, that was released, uh, as I understand, in September 1938. Um, c- could you tell us a little bit about the storyline?
2: Yeah, sure. So, the, let me start from the author. Great. Professor Mamluk, the Soviet film, is based on a play that was originally written and staged all over the world in various theaters by a famous German later, East German author, Friedrich Wolf. Friedrich Wolf was an interesting character. He was a German Jew, and like a character in his play, Professor Mamluk, he was a physician. But he became very famous for writing theater plays in the 1930s, when many German Jews and later Austrian Jews were escaping the Third drive. instead of going to Hollywood like many others, that's a better known story, he went to Moscow. And this is the start uh, of the plot of Professor Manley. Because we have to understand that uh, this film was written by someone who experienced Nazi anti-Semitism first hand.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It wasn't a hearsay. Mm-hmm. Another important context before we even talk about the Mamluk is at that time, it's 1930s, uh, Soviets see um, Nazism, the rise in Nazism as a kind of Capitalist phenomena is something that is uh, affiliated with class war. And so they stage this huge anti-Nazi, anti-fascist campaign, and they produce lots of films that are anti-Nazi or anti-fascist. And so Professor Mamluk and a couple of other films that I write about in the book, they are part of that concerted Soviet effort to confront um, Nazism, mm-hmm. but the particular films that I write about they also confront anti-Semitism, not anti-Semitism. This is why they are so remarkable. Mm-hmm. So, the plot. Uh, the main character, Professor mamlov like the author Friedrich Wolf himself, is a German-Jewish physician. He seems to be very apolitical. He's just a man of science. But gradually, as the Nazis arrive into power, as as he's confronted with the actual persecution, in the key moment of the film, he's dragged through the streets of Berlin with a word, "Jude" written on his chest in big letters. He's thrown away from his clinic. So, you yeah. So he starts to really understand that politics is something very serious, and he cannot just ignore it. Mm-hmm. In the subplot of the film, his son gets involved with the communist underground, and um, you know ultimately the film ends with sort of celebration of this communist uh, unity of working class people with uh, the party leadership he is standing up to the Nazism. As we know, the history didn't quite, and uh, you know that that's not how the actual events are generated. Mm-hmm. And that but this is yeah. So this is the this is the film.
1: So and and the film I think you explain in your book um, transforms the characteristics of the novel um, and the uh, play that had been performed. That is the the Soviets took their own. Uh, uh, pr- perspective on the events and transform the story in a sense to make their point about um, the strengths and the virtues of communism.
2: Correct. Well, what happens? Um, what happens in the play is so Friedrich Wolf writes this very German play uh, where really the confrontation between the um, Jewish Mamluk and the, the Nazis, the brown shorts at that point, I think, is really a confrontation between the values of enlightenment and the values of, not the values, and I should say, sort of this barbaric force of um, the rising Nazis. But that's not the, con- the conflict that the Soviets were keen on. In the original play by Friedrich Wolf, Mamluk commits suicide. There is no way out, mm-hmm. so the play actually is a tragedy. But in the Soviet Union, the conflict had to be between the progressive forces of communism and, um, mm-hmm. you know, the decaying capitalism. Nazis being just one of the symptoms of decay. And of course, suicide was not something that you could put on a Soviet screen in 1938. So, in fact, film en- that, that's why the film ends with a happy end, and that's why this uh, communist underground starts being a very, very important subplot, and in some ways, overpowers the original Mama narrative. Friedrich mm-hmm. Wolf himself didn't like that take on his play, uh, he got into quite a bit of trouble actually with soviet secret police who was shadowing him right and mm-hmm. we should appreciate the irony here right so yes Walt escapes the nazi secret police only to fall in the hands of soviet secret police
0: mm-hmm.
2: but he got lucky he wasn't deported he wasn't executed he survived, in fact, uh, the war in the Soviet Union. After the war, he with his two sons returns to East Germany. And here is the interesting thing. He has two sons. Martin's Wolf, the so older, becomes a head of the mm. the East German secret police. Yes, that's amazing. And the younger, Konrad Wolf becomes a famous East German filmmaker. And in fact, many years later, in 1961, Conrad Wolfe does a remake of Professor Mallot restoring the plot to his father, his father's
1: original play. Mm-hmm. The Final revenge.
2: Yes. So you know if, if anyone is interested they can um, they can is sort
1: of he's German yes and if they're interested I want to let our listeners know and I'll repeat this at the end of our conversation that if they go to your companion website for the book uh, they can see uh, one, one of the most striking excerpts from Professor Mameluk from the 1938 version that you have with okay. subtitles on your on your website um, so great. Okay. Now, Wait. you, um, this in fact, uh, this 1938 version was a great artistic success. You, um, you tell the readers of your book and it was viewed worldwide, which seems really interesting that it was viewed not only in the Soviet U- Union, but also in Europe and in the United States. Um, and I, I thought one of the, uh, particularly, um, interesting points that you make is that the Soviet Jews who saw it, in some instances, this film helped to save their lives. Uh, could could you say a few words and explain for our readers how that worked?
2: Sure. So, first of all, it's important to understand that the reason it resonated, this film resonated so much with the audiences both in the Soviet Union and abroad, not just Jews, but Jews in particular, is because of the... Release of the film literally coincided with pogroms in Nazi Germany. When I was doing research about this film and I was reading Soviet newspapers, the reviews of this film were literally on the same newspaper pages as the reports about
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, so it, it, it's uncanny. I mean just like this kind of so, so it doesn't it doesn't leave you
1: different. Yes, the timing was amazing. The timing was just amazing, right? Plus, the timing was before the Ribbentrop Treaty, which I gather so, once the Soviets signed the treaty with with Hitler, then the movie was withdrawn.
2: That's correct. So, and um, also, we know we know from newspaper reports that uh, it also struck a particular nerve with uh, the Nazi movement in the U.S., because there was a Nazi movement in the U.S. as well. Uh, There was this uh, German organization called Bund, not to confuse with um, uh, Yiddish GUND. We know that there was a bomb thrown uh, during the performance of Mamluk in one of the New York theaters. I mean, this this movie really unnerved some Nazi sympathizers here. Mm -hmm. Now, now we go back to, to the Soviet Union. In 1938, we have not just Professor Mama, there are three such uh, anti-Nazi films released that deal with the Nazi anti-Semitism. And from these films, Soviet Jews learn about the dangers of Nazi anti-Semitism, that this is serious. So, this Movies made a dent in their memory. Now, as you correctly point out, in nineteen thirty nine, Stalin wants Hitler's friendship by all means. They signed this famous pact in nineteen thirty nine with a secret subclause. Um you know, dividing Poland between them, etc. Anyways. After 1939, Stalin and Hitler are on very good terms and all these films are pulled out of circulation, but the lesson stuck. So in 1941, when Nazi Germany invades Soviet Union, imagine the invasion goes from the West. So, the first places to be invaded this is the former Pale of Settlement. Those are the places with the highest concentration of Jewish population in the Soviet territories. So, the, so arguably, Soviet Jews that remember the lessons that they learned from Mamluk and other characters in these films know to take the threat very seriously and escape. Those real- who left behind were all murdered. So there is a historical argument, and we don't have, you know, this full fledged archival proof, but we have some evidence of that in coming I in mean, from mainly interviews with survivors. Who, who tell time and again, I watched in 1938, I watched Professor Mamak, or I watched the Oppenheim family, that was another very famous anti-Nazi uh, film, and I knew not to trust the Soviet propaganda that said, don't worry about it, this world will go over quickly, don't run away from
0: uh-huh.
1: escape. they escaped. It's a yes. r- remarkable story of the power of film, yes. in this instance. Um I noticed uh, just 10 days ago that this film was featured at the Film Institute of Lincoln Center in mm-hmm. New York City uh that you've been to London uh where this film was shown at the film festival and also in Toronto at the Jewish Film Festival not uh not long ago how did how did it come about could you share with our listeners a little bit about the uh re-release of these films now with subtitles and your role in that effort?
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah. I was lucky enough to establish, through one of my wonderful colleagues, a relationship with the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. I got interested in this project, and so last year, we succeeded to subtitle uh, Professor Mamluk. It's, you know, it's a rare film. It's not available with English subtitles normally. And so, yeah, so we screened it at uh, at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival to full audience. And this January, it came, as you pointed out, to the Lincoln Center in New York and was screened as a part of the New York Jewish uh, Film Festival. And, you know, in both cases, we had full audiences and people were just so fascinated with the story. So it was really great. So this was part of um, my dream come true because I want these movies to be back in our uh, consciousness. Mm
1: -hmm. It's very exciting. Um, So we've we've talked now about Professor Mamluk and uh, you've mentioned that there were other films too, which the readers of your book will have an opportunity to learn more about, all of which were in the 1930s. Uh, now let's jump to 1945, immediately after the war, and talk briefly about the film The Unvanquished, which you identify as the first depiction of the Holocaust on Soviet screens and perhaps the first depiction of the Holocaust anywhere, um, at, which came out, was released immediately after the war, of course in 45, at a point in time where perhaps Soviet censors Did not know how to react, the censors, the critics, all the people who are involved in the process of making and releasing and approving and responding to films. So I wonder if you could uh, talk with us now about The Unvanquished. Perhaps start by telling us about the storyline and then we could talk about the, uh, the censorship and the process that the film went through.
2: Right, so the story then vanquished is like this. So it takes place in, the film takes place in Ukraine, in some sort of Ukrainian town. However, it was filmed on location in Kiev, so, you know, we can read um, Kiev as a place of action. The main character is actually not a Jewish character, the main character is this Ukrainian guy, uh, Taras. Who is a patriarchal through this, uh, you know, solid Ukrainian family, and his sons are fighting in France, and his daughters in law are uh, with him taking care of the family and the kids. And, you know, to us, is a little bit like Professor Mamad, like he's kind of apolitical, you know, this politics are not about business. But the war brings a political What well, starts Transforming to us is his meeting with Dr. Fishman. Now, Dr. Fishman is a local Jewish doctor, and he's kind of like Dr. Doolittle. I mean, he's he's a children's doctor, and he's just this uh, wonderful, um, kind, a charming doctor, very devoted to the children that he treats, and the the way Taras meets him is because Dr. Fishman comes to treat his uh, little sick granddaughter. Slowly, there is a friendship, friendship develops between the two, and occupied uh, Ukraine. Dr. Fishman is forced to wear a Jewish star on his jacket, and we can see that Dr. Fishman is only left with his own little granddaughter. We don't know what happened to the rest of his family. There are just hints in the movie that he lost all of them. Ultimately, Dr. Fishman is marched away with the entire Jewish population of the city and is executed, and the scene of mass execution is filmed actually on location in Babi Yar and it's just a heart rendering scene depicted with a kind of um, graphic horror that was not imaginable at, let us say, the U.S. screens, particularly in Hollywood films in 1944-45 when this film was made. Now, this is the end of Dr. Fishman, a horrible end, but his granddaughter Is hidden by Taras and his family, and the little girl survives. And this is the way of hope. This little Jewish girl who's hidden and who will live on. Mm -hmm. There are other subplots in the film, of course, but the fact that this key narrative is of Jewish execution, death, and then a ray of hope in the form of survival of this little girl. This is of course just mind-blowing for and for you know for nineteen forty five and we should think that the film was actually made in nineteen forty four even before the war is over mm-hmm. the film is made in Kiev at Kiev studio the moment Kiev is liberated. So the war is still raging. The Soviets are still fighting someplace you
0: know,
1: in Europe at that point. But mm-hmm. so, it's already making that film. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it make it? It's qu- quite remarkable and remarkable that a Jewish figure, the doctor, plays such a central role and that it was filmed in Kiev with the significance of Babi Yar, um, perhaps um, known to the viewers, uh, that, that that the Jewish content should be so significant. How did this happen?
2: Well, this is a very interesting story. So, Mark Spoy, the filmmaker, was, I explained it in the books, you know, he was a Soviet Jew, meaning, he was himself uh, from Odessa. Odessa was a very, very Jewish city. He spoke Yiddish. He identified with his Jewish roots. But, it wasn't really important. He wasn't part of some sort of Soviet Yiddish establishment. He wasn't. He, he has never made a, some sort of Jewish-themed film before. It just wasn't even on his radar. He made very powerful Soviet films. His previous film called The Rainbow was a Soviet war film, also set in occupied Ukraine, that apparently that was shown worldwide. That. Um, you know the American president of the time. a kind of watched without subtitles and moved him so much that he felt like have, that he doesn't need translation. So, so my dad's is really very very important Soviet the filmmaker. But it is the war, it is the events of the Holocaust that made him think about his Jewish brothers and sisters. So. The moment he is liberated, Donskoy comes to kill. and we know from his own writing that he talked to witnesses and potentially survivors. He knew exactly what happened in Badiyar and how it happened. He also made, by the way, a very interesting decision. He made a decision to not represent the scene of the execution. Accurately. We you know the people, we know from uh, historical research that people were, you know, lined up naked. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into that. Donskoye feels the scene very differently. There is also a very, very horrid execution. But actually, the way the execution takes place visually, it's reminiscent of a very famous uh, Russian film. Battleship Potomkin, if anyone has ever taken a film class, they Mm -hmm. must have seen this film. Mm -hmm. The key scene in this film is when a row of Cossacks are advancing and shooting innocent people. And that's exactly how the execution in Babi Yar is shown in Danskoy film. So Danskoy was reaching out to the vocabulary of Russian uh, avant-garde cinema, of Russian Worldwide known art film in order to make
1: statements, mm-hmm. and and you 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 draw a really interesting point when you note that Eisenstein himself in Battleship Potemkin was drawing on earlier yes. Pogrom imagery. So in some ways, this imagery has come full circle from Pogrom to Eisenstein and back now to Donsky.
2: Yes. This is this is true. Eisenstein for himself wasn't you know technically Jewish, but he had some sort of Jewish roots, and he identified with uh, Jewish people at least on sort of some sort of cultural level. He definitely was. He was very moved by uh, the events of 1905, by pogroms of 1905, and part of the inspiration behind uh, making of Potemkin. Was the kind of violence that we witnessed in anti-Jewish problems. Mm-hmm. In and so yes, so this, the imagery comes full circle. Right,
1: right. and again, but, you, uh, our listeners can see uh, the scene that you described on your companion website. Um, Let me ask you, this film was reviewed and ultimately approved by the Artistic Council, which had been formed, I think, just the previous year? Yes. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about the Artistic Council and how how they came to approve a film that seems so contrary to uh, what we think of in terms of Phantom Holocaust? Well, first
2: of all, You know, Artistic Council was just yet another one of those Soviet bodies that, uh, organizations that were ostensibly just editors, right? It was like an editorial board or something like that. But in real life, they were censors. So this is how Soviet censorship worked. So it's, you know, senses were not necessarily some sort of evil guys separate from the filmmaking industry. They were part and par- parcel of uh, filmmaking process. They were uh, colleagues who came in and, uh, you know, tried to do that <clears throat> work of policing content. So... This is how this worked out. Now, in particular case of the Vanquished, and we are extremely lucky that we had a full protocol of uh, the artistic council meeting at which Van Vanquished was discussed. Now, if you look at the wall circles those present, it's amazing. This is those are the figureheads of Soviet culture. Uh, Shostakovich is there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Eisenstein is there. Uh, there are other people who are blessed. Uh, well, known in the West, but at that point, they're these celebrities are, uh, the sort of the Soviet filmmaking. And the discussion splits. It's a long and painful discussion. And uh, part of the, some people who say, you know, this, is, this cannot be. You know, we can't make a film essentially about Jews. This is not okay. <clears throat> One of the uh, people actually says, you know, we should just destroy the film and make it from scratch. And at that point, Eisenstein, who is silent until now, who is silent the entire discussion, says, huh, this is just a stuff of nightmares. And everyone laughs. And then the, the film czar, you know, the guy who is the head of the film industry at points well, you know, comrades, then let's let's move to a this film. And that was it. Mm-hmm. So what exactly happened? You know, we'll never find out, right? Uh, most likely, I think that uh, Eisenstein at that point was a very important figure. He himself would get into trouble with uh, Stalin and Stalin's censorship machine and very shortly, in just one one year, where uh, the, his film Ivan the Terrible is put on shelf and never released, etc. But 1925, you know, his star is still shining brightly. And so his advocacy means a lot. Mm-hmm. And so the, that that remark potentially was uh, saved the day. Mm-hmm. And this is what I found in general in uh, the history of censorship and release of these films, that... To some degree, it is auditory. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the film is saved by just a sympathetic bureaucrat. Sometimes the film is saved by an advocacy of someone, you know, like Eisenstein. Or sometimes it's failed by some equally uh, offhand one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: This is what we see time again. Interesting. We'll be yeah, very lucky to have the uh, endowment. Van and I should mention that uh, I am working now on subtitling as well, and I'm really hoping that um, I will be able to bring it back from the Argentin as well.
1: Oh, great! That's because exactly. that's what I wanted to ask you: uh, when we can see it. So that is something that you're working on, so that we will be able to see it in the future with subtitles. Yes. yes.
2: But you know these things are big projects. They require fundraising. There is a lot of technical effort, and uh, you know there is questions of rights. So, yeah, but I'm I'm very optimistic. Great,
1: great. Okay, okay. so we're so, going to move ahead twenty years now. Uh, the Unvanquished was 45 that it was released, as you said, made in 44. Um, and now we'll move ahead. After Stalin, there are intermittent thoughts that you describe, uh, yet censorship continues. Um, it varies. Uh, let's go to 1965 when an incredible movie, Ordinary Fascism, is released uh, or is made. Uh, you describe it as an explosion. A real breakthrough in Holocaust films, stunning. And from the, uh, the excerpt that I saw on your website, it's, uh, perhaps one of the most powerful films, uh, that I can imagine. So let's, let's talk briefly about Ordinary Fascism, which, uh, was a blockbuster with 20 million people. You, uh, you let us know who chose to see a black and white three hour documentary. Why? Why would people go to a three hour uh, documentary in black and white in 1965 on fascism can you tell us the storyline here and tell us a little bit about it
2: well so I can't speak to the 20 million people who bought their tickets uh, mm-hmm. but I can tell you a little bit about the filmmakers so the the, the director is Mikhail Rom spelled R-O-M-M mm-hmm. So Wong was a remarkable figure. He was a little bit like uh, Donskoy, meaning that he was also uh, ethnically Jewish. Never made any sort of Jewish films before. The events of the war and the Holocaust move him tremendously. Raise his Jewish consciousness on the one hand. On the other hand, what also raises his both Jewish consciousness and one may say I don't know class consciousness. Also, events at home. We have to understand that uh, in the Soviet Union, Hitler's atrocities were framed by on both ends by by Stalin's atrocities. You know, sees in a long season, 1930s. Uh, you know, friends and colleagues disappear in the gulags. Um, after the war. There is the rise of Stalin's there mm-hmm. There is, um, uh, you know, the famous Doctors' Plot in which the Jewish doctors uh, suspect are suspect that rounded up, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1952, very famously, um, the best of the Yiddish authors are all rounded up and just executed. Long through that, and. He always takes a very active position of kind of an advocate of um, Jewish artists and authors. He also speaks up openly against the Soviet anti-Semitism. And so in 1965, he, together with the two other younger, also Jewish, filmmakers, he makes this phenomenal three-hour Film and this is the only, by the way, this is the only documentary that I include in the book because it's not quite documentary. It's sort of uh, sometimes this genre is described as essay film or uh, montage film.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's this nine-part, three-hour exploration, ostensibly about the Nazi fascism, but really he's talking about the nature of the totalitarian regime and about state violence. Mm-hmm. And people read the film as not only speaking about Nazism but also speaking about Stalinism, mm-hmm. and I think that could be part of its appeal. There
0: mm-hmm.
2: it was nothing like that in nineteen sixties so. Union. Mm-hmm. Another another thing that I should mention that this film was had also very different aesthetic. Uh, from anything else that was released back then on Soviet screens. I mean, it's he, sarcastic and funny, in kind of black humor funny. And the voiceover in the film, the narration, is by Mikhail Rom himself. He speaks to the audience in the informal way. He makes fun of Hitler. He doesn't just treat him as a monster. He exposes him as this kind of you know, inadequate, petty human you know, being. And it was just so to hear this real voice, not official, fucked up and kind of devoid of anything human, but just to hear a sarcastic tone from scream, that was a breath of fresh air in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that that's another that's another part of its appeal. By the way, this film was a lucky exception. It's not quite a phantom. In fact, Bernice, you already mentioned the um, phantomhalacos.org that's their companion. To the book from their uh, companion there is a link to the film streaming uh, on most film website website, film is the Russian film studio that made the film, and it's available streaming with subtitles,
1: so people can see it. Oh, terrific. Thank you. Um, you, you meet with Maya Turovskaya, one of the scriptwriters in Munich. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about your meeting and why the film was authorized? Why did the scriptwriters get the okay to go ahead with this film?
2: Well, this is an interesting story. So the film doesn't start as Rome's idea. Rome is a filmmaker, but the film starts um, in the, in very early 60s when Maya Turovskaya, who is this brilliant, brilliant uh, woman, a, a filmmaker, a scriptwriter, and uh, a film critic, receives a gift of a book by Krakauer from Caligari to Hitler. It's a very famous book. She gets very interested in the book. It's, uh, you know, uh, and she wants to see uh, German films uh, from, you know, my period. And she goes, you know, as a film critic, she has access to that. So she's uh, sitting in um, these Russian archives and watches these films in the neighboring, in the room next to her, another young filmmaker and film critic, Yuri Hanutin, sits and watches uh, Soviet war films because he is writing a dissertation. About that. And, you know, they uh, smoke like all the Russians of certain generations and they, you know, they come out of the rooms and they smoke and they start talking about their respective films and they realize that there are some parallels between, you know, Soviet story and German story. Uh And so this is the origins of this film. So later on, uh, Maya Terovska and Yuri Hanukin write that screenplay uh, together, uh, bringing in materials from really, really different sources. They cite, you know, they include Nazi propaganda, they include uh, cinema verite from contemporary Germany, they include Um, You know, footage uh, from sort of concentration camp sites, Mm -hmm. various, you know, various, various, various stills uh, of executions. We don't have films of executions, but we have stills, etc. And so they bring all this to Mikhail Rom and say, "Here, we want to make this movie." And Mikhail Rom says. Okay, I can see this is important, and I understand that without me, you will not be able to make it, right? Because the young people and the novices. Arom oh. is classic, is, mm-hmm. and has tremendous weight in um, in Soviet Union. And so, so he takes him, he takes them under his wing, and he sort of oversees the filmmaking. And once the film is made then the question is how to prove it they understand perfectly well that this film cannot be approved because to criticize to, to criticize not just you know the German Nazism, but also by implication Soviet totalitarianism it is just completely impossible it's a non-starter in 1965 Soviet Union So they devise this phenomenal story and I'm not gonna be able to tell it in all the details, so it's literally like a spy novel. They talk to former spies, they bring in people from East Germany, goes to all sorts of higher ups. Ultimately they make it happen. They make this film premiere in East Germany, arranged for great publicity for it. And once it premieres in East Germany, which, of course, is, you know, a friendly regime, and once the East German communist leaders approve of it, that's the moment when they are able to bring it for approval in the Soviet Union. And that's when the Soviet higher don't really have a choice but to approve it. It's a very
1: strange story. It's, it's, so, a, it's a great story. There's, there's another story, too, in connection with the book that was never made. You want to tell us about that?
2: Well, there is also an element, yeah, so okay, so another um, once once the film premieres, as, uh, as I mentioned to you, it becomes a tremendous event in the Soviet Union People have never seen anything like that, and so the young filmmakers say, oh, let's you know, let's make a book out of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, let's um, create a book that uh, you know tells about uh, not just the filmmaking, but also tells the whole story in greater detail and they You know, they work on this book. The book is uh, almost printed They're literally like Gets to a point uh, where uh, galleys almost exist, and then it gets destroyed on the orders from above. Worm, well, the senior filmmaker, is very upset, and he goes to the higher ups and says, uh, What's going on? Why, you know, do you guys release the movie? What's the problem? And then the, the Soviet official tells him, Look, you will watch the movie once. They'll forget about it, but the book they will keep reading and reading, and they will start thinking. Mm-hmm. And so this is how the book is destroyed.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: of course it's so interesting that today we don't think of the film as you know something that's available only once, right? It's mm-hmm. streaming everywhere, twenty four seven, and are constantly instantly available to us. But of course in the Soviet Union. This film, you know, premiered once; it made a big splash, but then it was kind of rolled back. Mm-hmm. Right? So it didn't it didn't remain um,
1: in the theaters for mm-hmm. an amazing story. Uh, now we're going to move to our uh, final uh, film story, and this truly is a phantom. It's a Lith- Lithuanian film. God mitjuns, God is with us which was a banned screenplay that came back from the dead. And it's a window onto filmmakers' experience with Holocaust themes, filmmakers who are in the satellite states of the Baltic states, in this case Lithuania. So Gott mit uns was a screenplay uh, in 1961. Um, And if you could tell us a little about that, Um, I I think you perhaps want to read uh, an excerpt from your book about that to set the scene for us? Oh, sure. So, first of all, let me explain
2: to you the title briefly, because it might sound confusing. So, Gott mit uns in German, it's German for God is with us. Mm -hmm. And aside from, um, you know, sort of theological meanings of uh, this statement, this is also a slogan that was printed on the buckles of the Nazi belt. And the reason this screenplay is called Gatmituns is because the main character in uh, the screenplay is this Lithuanian priest who on a whim saves a little jerk boy. So this is the premise of this drama and, you know, goes from there. So I think this is the, just literally like the greatest screenplay on the subject of the Holocaust I have ever read. And um, you know the, the fact that it has never been made is a real tragedy. I mean, it wouldn't have changed uh, the you know the way we think today about the was film and what does it mean. Anyway, so um, yeah, so I will read actually a little bit from this uh, from the book, not so much about the um, screenplay itself. But about the process with this, of its uh, discovery. Thanks. So the story starts uh, with finding finally a copy of uh, the screenplay in the Russian archives. And I should tell you that uh, in the Russian archives, when you sign out a, a copy of something, there is like a sign-up sheet on which all the previous readers have to put their name. Yes. And yeah. I took it out from the archives. There was no names on the sign-up sheet. So since 1961, no one has ever touched it. You're out here. So, anyways, the, the stories, so I will start reading to you from a place where I just read this screenplay that totally just blew my mind away, that I love very intensely. And the same day as I read it, I met with a friend of mine who is a filmmaker in Moscow. His last name is the day, mentioned... To him, this uh, screenplay, and he said, You know, I want to read. And after he read it, um, he showed up at my door and said, I want the rights. <laughs> so, this is where it starts. The screenplay was written by uh, Grigory Konovich and Vitalta Zhawa Karachus. Now I'm reading. Zelikovitch had passed away in 1996, but Kanovich was still alive and probably living in Israel. In 1991, he wrote a legendary essay, A Jewish Daisy, which made a convincing case for Soviet Jews to go to Israel. I called my mother, who lives in Tel Aviv, and recruited her help. Israel is a small place, and in two days I had Kanovich's phone number. With shaking hands, I dialed. Can I speak with Grigory Simonovich? I said in Russian? Kanović was summoned, and I explained to him that I had found gotlit uns and wanted to talk to him about it. He gasped. Ole, told his wife, can you believe it, you found our screenplay? Returning to me, he said, I thought it was lost. You're bringing me back to 1961 when Jelakiewicz and I were working on the screenplay in Yalta. That's a Russian seaside resort. And then we got a call that the screenplay was slaughtered. We were crushed. Well, I said... That brings me to the second point. There is this filmmaker, and he really wants to make a movie based on Got films. Clearly, we had a lot to talk about. We made a date. Kalorich and his wife travel every year to Nida, a seaside resort in Lithuania, to see friends and family. I worked out a way to join him in Nida for a few days. In early August 2009, Gazette, that's my friend, the filmmaker, his wife, and I landed in Vilnius rented a car, and drove to Nida, about 200 miles from Vilnius. On the way, we stopped at Konari Forest, near Vilnius, where Nazis murdered 100,000 people, 70,000 of them Jews. This was a terrible place, former Soviet fuel pits, into which Nazis threw dead Jewish bodies, then, in attempt to cover up traces of the massacre, exhumed the bodies, burned them, and threw them back into the pits. Among the memorials at the edge of repeat, with Lithuanian teenagers were drinking beer. We came to meet a picturesque resort town on the tip of a peninsula with the Baltic Sea on one side and Kursky Bay on the other. We checked into our hotel, the same place where the Konoviches were staying. And this turned out to be not just any hotel, it was a Soviet style writer's resort. Don't watch it for society once reserved for elite members of the Soviet Raiders' Union. Today, anyone can check in, but the hotel preserved Soviet decor in its devoted clientele, like the Konovitches. The rooms in tiny cottages scattered over the hill had antiquated plumbing, rusty bathtubs, leaky faucets, toilets that either didn't flush at all or never stopped flushing, and carpeting with both signs of generations of Soviet writers having had a good time. I have not seen anything like this since my Soviet childhood. The hotel stood on a hill, and the main building had a rooftop cafe with good coffee and Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. The view offered dunes and the sea on one side, and a lighthouse and woods on the other. We, we could have done worse. The staff members were Lithuanian youths who looked like Californian circus, mm-hmm. tall, tan, barefoot, with blonde dreads. The four Californians spoke English and German. The Russian was either elementary or non existent. The Tanoviches came to meet us at the picnic table near the cottage. Grigory Simonovich, small, serious, focused, and Elfin Olga Makarovna, still beautiful at 80. We spent the next five days together talking at the picnic table and at various other tables at their favorite local restaurants. Gazelle was thrilling Kanovich about the rights, which proved to be not a trivial matter as the rights were split between Kanovich and Jalokarich's cares. A number of ex-wives, their husbands, and his children mostly know them speak in terms with each other. All the while, Konovitch was telling me how Gotlit came about. It seems as though Konovitch was destined to write Gotlit He was born in 1929 in a shtetl Yonave, near Kaunas to an old Lithuanian Jewish family. Konovitch and his parents survived the war, but Lithuanian Jewry was decimated. of nearly 240,000 people were killed. This history defined him as a writer, inspiring him to become a chronicler and a poet of his people. His novels tell us an epic story of his shtetl from the 19th century to the Holocaust. The place is always the same, Mishkine, the shtetl's fictional name. His plots are based not only in commodities but on memories. In the post-war era, Komovic spent a lot of time listening to survivors and was saturated with their stories. In 1959, Komovic, then a young and barely published author, started talking with Jalkaviches about an idea for a screenplay. Jalkaviches would later become an icon of Lithuanian cinema, but he was just 27 then, fresh from his directorial debut, and searching for a new project. The idea Kanovich shared shared was based on a true story that he heard from the survivor. Kanovich recalls it this way. An old Jewish man told me how a Catholic priest saved his son. The Jews were marched in a column, adults and children together. When a man in cassock appeared in front of them and told one of the guards, do you want to make a little money? Do you want to do a good deed? That will please God. Sell me one boy. I will choose him myself. And he chose a boy with light hair and blue eyes, and he took him away. That was this man's son. And the father understood that the priest was saving the boy. Now so I'll stop reading here, but so at this moment, this actual memory of a survivor became a starting point for. This remarkable
0: screenplay mm-hmm.
1: that we all want to see. So why was this never made into a movie?
0: Well,
2: the screenplay that uh, you know it was 1961, so the it was possible to write this screenplay in Lithuania. Because Lithuania was further away from the center, it wasn't Moscow, it was sort of Soviet periphery. Therefore, we have this screenplay, let us say in in Moscow, it would have have been a complete non-starter, no one would have submitted this screenplay in the first place. So they wrote it, they submitted it to Lithuanian studio, the Lithuanian studio. It was seen as something, you know, potentially promising, but of course it was not possible to be made in the general Soviet context. Mm -hmm. So it stopped in its tracks once it got to the old Soviet level. -hmm. Basically, it was impossible to make into a film because it dealt simultaneously with two taboo subjects. Mm -hmm. One is the Jewish Holocaust, and the second one is um, Lithuanian Catholicism. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh,
2: So, because the priest is, of course, represented sympathetically. Yes, And that
1: that was not uh, a possibility. Mm You, you quote the writer who compares the revisions and repeated interference and endless revisions to uh, writing this as uh, he compares it to a, a difficult C-section. Um, it makes it quite uh, uh, quite poignant. Um, what's what's an update on this Olga? I understand that somebody is seeking to produce the film. Do you know where it stands? Um,
2: right now, this uh, filmmaker. Alec Gazet, whom I introduced to Konović, has a treatment ready. He has some initial funding. He's still um, looking for more funding. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I learned from uh, Alec Gazer, funding a Holocaust film is not an easy project. That, that is a, not, you know, it's not going to be a blockbuster. So it's very difficult. It's a non-commercial project, mm-hmm. and although well, we treat in this culture, how was the second subject? You know, for every Schindler's List, there are literally dozens of films that no one sees. So it's a very difficult uh, undertaking.
1: Well, that brings me to what I wanted to ask you as we wrap up this conversation. Uh, We've seen, what, 50 years of Soviet censorship uh, that uh, demanded of screenwriters that they um, revise their screenplays and film directors who sat at the edge of their chair, not sure whether their films would be released. Uh, You talk about one director who went to Israel and found that he could not produce his films in Israel because they did not promise commercial success. Um, And I think you've just shared with us, too, um, that uh, there aren't many Schindler lists out there, uh, that these these in a free society, if you will, um, have to run the gauntlet of promising to return a profit from the from their investors. So, what do you think about? Uh, I mean, do we take it for granted that the Soviet censor and we in the West perhaps have a free society, or is there ultimate really ultimately censorship? everywhere, whether it's perhaps commercial versus um, political, uh, it's censorship nonetheless.
2: I would never call uh, the current economic pressures censorship. So I think there is a distinct difference between the totalitarian uh, censorship that the Soviet filmmakers faced and between the economic constraints that any filmmaker is facing in contemporary world in which, you know, at least I'm thinking about the US and Israel where censorship is, you know, probably very minimal. Also, I can tell you that I'm now starting to work with this amazing filmmaker, Carl Glock, on making this movie into a documentary. So again, it's kind of, you know, uh, making my book into a documentary, kind of you know, like a film about films.
1: Oh, fantastic.
2: So, and we are, we will be facing the same problems. It is in general, Exceedingly difficult to finance any film, a particular film that doesn't, is not gonna have, you know, the hugely profitable uh, economic prospect.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think this, uh, yeah, I, I wish it wasn't like that. But look, there is no artistic council that is holding a gun to our, head, to our heads. Mm-hmm. We will feel no persecution. There will be no repercussions for when we make this film. Mm-hmm. And I tell in the book the stories of filmmakers that paid with their careers, that paid with their lives for the films that they made. Mm-hmm. So I think for these reasons, as hard as fundraising is in in the US and elsewhere, I I will take it
1: over the censorship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. You help us focus on what's important and what we can appreciate about our own society, both here and in Israel, as to the freedom of uh, expression. What what do you think about the future of access to Soviet films in the West?
2: Hmm. That's a really good question. I think that this is, um, again, it's a, first of all, it's, it's just a question of access, right? So I we just discussed Professor Mamluk that uh, was subtitled with generous support uh, from the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Now I'm looking for a distributor. Again, it's the same story. You know, I I'm very optimistic. I think that I will eventually find a distributor, and then the film will slowly find its way into you know film festivals or classrooms. Mm-hmm. You know, these films will never play at Cinemark near you, mm-hmm. and they shouldn't. But I think for as long as we keep at it and, you know, subtitle a few other really extraordinary films, I'm optimistic.
1: Mm-hmm. You, know, if, you know, if we keep working on it, um, it will
0: happen. Mm-hmm.
1: That's great. Thank you. You've shared so many really interesting stories with us. I'm very grateful for your time today. Let me uh, ask you a question in parting. Uh, is is there another work in progress that you might want to share with us? I, I know you're doing a lot, it sounds like, in connection with the Phantom Holocaust and moving that forward. Uh, anything else uh, that you're working on at this time?
2: There are other projects always that I'm working on, but the most important project for me right now is uh, a documentary based on the Phantom Holocaust. Mm-hmm. If um, your audience might uh, remember this wonderful documentary by Danny Anker called Imaginary Witness, this is a documentary about the way uh, the Holocaust was portrayed on the American screens, starting from, um, you know, 1940s and up to today. So my a dream is really to make kind of a parallel of film that would tell the story of the the way the Haucus was portrayed, you know but on the other side. And this is the story that also deals with Cold War. Uh, it deal so it's it's a story that is not just um narrowly a uh, conceived story of The Jewish laws and passport trade screen, but for larger stories um, about the world divided things
1: too. Thank you very much, Olga. We look forward to checking back with you on on your work in progress. Uh, We spoke today with Dr. Olga Gershenson about her new book, *The Phantom Holocaust*, available from Rutgers University Press, as well as Amazon and your favorite bookseller. Check out her companion website, phantomholocaust.org, for film clips and watch for Dr. Gershenson at major film festivals around the country. Thanks for listening today and check back soon for another podcast interview in New Books in Jewish Studies.